I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode number 449 for March 23rd, 2015. On today's show, saxophonist Jasmine Lovell Smith. Hey, are you a member of the Jazz Session? It's just five bucks a month. It gets you MP3s and other exclusive content. But most importantly, your five dollars goes directly toward keeping thejazzsession.com online. And that means you have access to well over 400 shows in the archives. So if you think that is cool and you would like both yourself and others to have access to this library of interviews, please become a member, which you can do very simply at thejazzsession.com join. If you subscribe to this show in iTunes, please rate and review it there. Don't forget there's a radio version that airs Friday mornings from 9 to 11 Eastern Time. And you can find out more about that at thejazzsession.com. I've recently started doing stand-up comedy, and I launched a new podcast to help track the evolution of that. It's called First Laughs, and you'll find it at firstlaughs.com. There are five episodes so far. The fifth one just went up uh, the day before this show. So please, after you finish listening to this interview with Jasmine Lovell-Smith, head over to firstlaughs.com and check out my other podcast. I've also got a blog at jasoncrane.org, and I do PR work for artists of all kinds at cranewrites.com. My guest on this show is Jasmine Lovell-Smith. Here's some music from her debut recording.
guest is saxophonist and composer Jasmine Lovell Smith. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me, Jason. Uh, looking forward to talking. Now, I met you in Brooklyn in, I guess, about 2012 or so, but that was uh, kind of uh, the midpoint of a, a really impressive journey that you've been on, starting in New Zealand and then uh, New York and Connecticut and uh, now in Mexico. Um, I think for folks maybe who are just getting to meet you on this show, uh, can we start with how you got introduced to the saxophone and to improvise music when you were in New Zealand? Sure. Okay. Sounds good. So um, I'm just trying to untangle this in my brain. Okay. Let's see. Well, I would say I came from a musical family. Um, my mother is a singer, but she is a classically trained singer. Um, she's also, she teaches a lot. She's interested in musical theater. Um, and everyone else in my family sings, and I grew up playing the piano and the violin and kind of, I guess, like a fairly typical classical musical education. Um, and I think I became interested in jazz first because I had a um, we had a German exchange student come live with us when I was in high school who was interested in jazz. She was a few years older and she sang and she played piano. And um, she sort of showed me the music of Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughan and that was where it started from for me. So it was really vocal music at first. Um, yeah, and then after that I think the first saxophone player I, I discovered was Stan Getz. <laughs> and that was, that was love, so yeah. <laughs> It was. I started on tenor, so that's. Um, it's been. It's been a bit of a journey to get to the soprano. It's been a circuitous path. And are you playing exclusively soprano these days? I'm playing. Um, well, things are a little. Uh, I would say things are kind of transitional. I'm playing. I still think of myself as a soprano player, but I'm playing some alto at the moment because I've been doing some teaching. And um, I've been playing more alto to teach and playing in other circumstances to kind of practice for teaching. <laughs> but yeah, I do, I do sort of identify as a soprano player and I play that when I'm playing the music that I'm most passionate about, I'm writing for myself on soprano. And uh, to go back to your, you, you mentioned your mom, who's a, a trained operatic singer. She's an American, right? She is. She's from Nebraska. So I'm actually kind of like a closet Midwesterner, which is quite funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so how did she get from Nebraska to New Zealand? Uh, she, she did an exchange after she finished university. So she was quite young. She finished university young. So I think she was about 19. And she, I think, just wanted an adventure, went to live in New Zealand for a year and met my dad. And shortly after that, they got married and settled there. So that's the rest is history. So she still lives in New Zealand and she she still has an American accent, but it's kind of a hybrid in the in a funny opposite way to mine. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, because yours has uh, I mean, you, yours definitely has qualities of the other places you've lived, I would say. And it's yeah. not just as straight New Zealand uh, no, as other no, people I know. So, um, if I start watching New Zealand TV, it reverts. My boyfriend was asking me about that the other day. <laughs> one of my uh, one of my best friends is from New Zealand, and she lives in Alabama. And I uh -huh. think she staunchly holds on to her accent because she refuses to, you know, be subsumed into the Alabama <laughs> way of speaking. Yeah. So she hasn't lost anything in all the years she's been there. Yeah, I think that would be a really interesting fusion. Like I've never heard that particular combination. So. No, yeah. no, neither have I, and in this particular case, I don't think I ever. <laughs> you 
discovered Stan Getz, uh, where were you in your in your playing at that point? I don't know if I discovered Stan Getz um, before. I think it was probably slightly after I started playing the saxophone. So I must have started playing just because I was interested in jazz and sort of thought the saxophone was cool. Uh, as most, I don't know. I feel like a lot of people have that idea about the saxophone. It's, um, and I wanted to be in. I wanted to be in the big band at my high school. So um, I think, yeah, I think I was just a complete beginner. I had probably been having some lessons just at school in group classes and um, was like, I need to start listening to jazz saxophone players. And Stan Getz was the first one. Maybe the second one was Sonny Rollins, I would guess. But I think those were two of my favorites from the beginning. Do you remember what it was about either of them that appealed to you? Um, well, I think with Stan Getz, uh, it's, it's definitely, uh, lyricism, like a kind of vocal quality. And he, a lot of his improvisations are, um, I mean, I think the first record I heard was, was jazz samba. Um, so a lot of the improvisations I think are based off of the melody of the songs, um, the Jobim tunes and um, whatever else is on that record. So I think it was just, uh, it was kind of easier to get into because I could hear the relationship between the improvisation and the melody. And so that was kind of my pathway into understanding what improvisation was. Did you, did you have someone around you at that time who could guide you as far as learning how to improvise was concerned? Yeah, I did. Um, the saxophone, so in New Zealand, there's an itinerant music program in, in a lot of schools, meaning that you can take lessons kind of in groups, um, which is usually free. Well, it was in my school anyway. Um, so I learned with the itinerant music teacher, who was a guy called Mark Hobson, and um, initially just in groups, and it was actually during class time, so it was a great way to kind of get out of class. <laughs> it was a great excuse. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he was a, he's actually more of a classical specialist, but he does both. He improvises, he plays jazz, and he plays classical saxophone and clarinet, so he does a lot of things, and he was very open-minded. So I think he sort of figured out that I liked jazz, 
early on and he encouraged me to improvise. And I think that most of what we did together was pretty much just by ear. Um, I remember improvising with him with play-alongs and kind of learning through mimicking the way that he would improvise, training choruses. And I don't remember learning a lot about theory of improv until later when I went to university. But very early on, it sounds like uh, from listening to people like Stan Getz and certainly Sonny Rollins is another classic example of this. You were getting the idea of like motivic development. You know, here's the melody and I'm going to take little chunks of that and build something. It sounds like that that happened very early on. Yeah, and I think that's still my basic approach to improvisation. I mean, I it's an approach that I enjoy because because you can hear a thought process behind it. It's kind of um, natural and interesting at the same time. So you uh, did that in high school, and then you decided to go to university, and you were majoring in jazz, uh, saxophone performance, and in composition, right? Right, yeah. I initially was just a performer because they didn't actually have um, – I think the composition major was only available from my second year onwards. Um, but, yeah, so I I started out just as a jazz saxophone major, um, playing tenor, and I think I actually acquired my soprano in that at the end of that first year of university because I remember playing it in my, um, in my recital that year. But it didn't get a lot of playtime <laughs> for quite some time after that. I was really focused on the tenor. And, uh, yeah, and then I started to compose. I basically started – I had done some composition earlier in my life. I had done some kind of uh, writing pop songs in high school and – I had taken music all the way through high school and done composition assignments for that. Um, but I hadn't written anything that was specifically a jazz composition, but I just sort of knew that I wanted to. So I majored in both from my second year onwards. And it was, so I was having private lessons in jazz composition and that was how I got started. Why did you get the soprano in the first place? Um, it was a, yeah, I don't know. I, I think somebody asked me this recently and I, it was hard to think of what my thought process was at the time, but I think I just had the impression that that was what tenor players did. They also played soprano um, because there are certainly plenty of examples of that. And I had started to really like Wayne Shorter, I think whilst I was in my first year of jazz school. And um, so I really liked his soprano playing. I loved the album Native Dancer. Um, and why else? I, you know, I don't know, but um, I had an opportunity to buy a soprano that kind of arrived because my teacher wanted to sell one. And so he ended up selling it to me. And that's the soprano that I still play. And um, yeah, I'm really grateful. It was a good deal. And uh, it was a good, it, it was funny because um, for a long time after that, I didn't play the soprano very much. And I would run into this teacher. His name is Johnny Lippiot. Um, he actually lives in Brooklyn, funnily enough now, but, um, he's an English, an English man who was living in New Zealand at the time. And he would say, are you giving it any on that soprano, Jasmine? And I would be like, oh, I haven't been playing it much lately and I would feel guilty. Um, but I sort of knew it was going to come to fruition. And now, you know, fast forward a few years and it's, it's my main instrument. So I'm super glad that I bought the soprano. Yeah, I remember uh, when I was a musician for my living, I played exclusively soprano, and uh, I remember I had played clarinet when I was a, a mm -hmm. young kid, 
and then I I started playing tenor in high school, uh, not by my own choice. I was just assigned to the tenor saxophone because there were too many clarinet players. Uh-huh. And one day I found on a shelf uh, a case with a really beautiful soprano inside it. And oh. I had never I never seen I mean I'd seen a soprano saxophone but never seen one in person. And I just remember the feeling of it kind of under my fingers. It was like this beautiful combination of the sound of a clarinet or the uh, the feel of a clarinet, kind of this close fingering. <laughs> Um, I felt like I could manipulate it very easily, but it sounded like a saxophone, which I really, which I really loved. And I mean, I played it in a lot of settings where, you know, I played in salsa bands and I played in funk bands and all kinds of places where usually a tenor or an alto would be a lot more common. And it, uh-huh. it just feels like a really malleable instrument, like a thing you can do a lot with. And it, it could fit in a lot of places that I think people were surprised by, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, uh, I've been, I feel like I keep learning more about all the different ways the soprano can sound and it can sound, uh, yeah, it can sound like so many different things. It can sound really reedy and oboe. It can sound very mellow. It can be very piercing. So yeah, I I think it has a big range and it hasn't been explored in as big of a range of contexts as the other saxophones. So that's kind of exciting. Yeah, there's also something, um, and we can explore this more in in detail in a bit. But there there are a lot of saxophone players who play one of the other saxophones and also play soprano. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, I might get in trouble for saying this, but to my ear, there with only a few exceptions, for the most part, when they play soprano, it sounds like it's not their main instrument because soprano is a very tricky beast. And I think a lot of times when people double the soprano suffers unless the saxophonist really put a lot of time into it. And obviously there are exceptions to that statement. But then when I, I remember the first time I heard Steve Lacey play Mm -hmm. and I was just blown away. I mean, I just someone who had such an individual and strong and, uh, and really focused sound of the soprano. And I think it really makes a difference if you, uh, and again, this is not to say that you can't play more than one saxophone. Well, but I think people who specialize in soprano, discover things about that instrument that people who just double on it often have a hard time getting to. Yeah. Well, I definitely have heard other people say the same thing and I've definitely heard, uh, you know, people who double on soprano who sound less, um, I don't know. They sound less comfortable or less in tune or, you know, there are various issues that can arise if it seems like it's, um, if it's not getting as much time as whatever other saxophone they're playing. I think, yeah, for me, I needed to focus just on the soprano to really get anywhere with it. Because for a long time, I, it was just too, it was too different. It was so different from the tenor. And um, I wasn't playing it every day. And whenever I'd pick it up, I would just be discouraged because it would sound terrible. (laughs) So um, for me, you know, I needed to just, to just play soprano for and focus on it for a long time to really make progress and once I did that I just liked it so much I didn't want to go back and did that happen while you were still in college uh it didn't it happened sort of recently I guess it would it happened in 2010 um the end of 2010 beginning of 2000 2010 no the beginning of 2010 ish um and it was kind of cemented because um I, it was in February of 2010 that I came to, uh, the United States and, um, 
before that, I had started playing soprano a bit, and I decided to go on this trip, which was kind of an open-ended trip. Um, I think I, I bought a ticket that I had to use the return within a year, but I was like, well, maybe I'll go for three months, maybe I'll go for nine months, maybe I'll find a job, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, so I took the soprano with me because I was playing it a lot and because it was portable. So I was like, okay, this makes sense. I'll travel with my soprano and I'll keep working on it. Um, and, and yeah, I did. And I, um, so, so that meant that I spent about a year without even having access to my tenor and it sort of solidified my commitment. <laughs> that, that is one way to make that decision. Yes. Yeah. Don't have a tenor is a great way to focus on the soprano. So before we, I want to talk about your your Brooklyn experience and your your U.S. experience. But there's about four years between the end of university and when you came to the U.S. What were you doing during that time? It, it was it was an interesting time. Let's see. So I I took a bit longer than usual to finish university because I did um, what's called an honors year in New Zealand. It's kind of like a half of a master's degree. So it was an extra year and. Um, and then I ended up working, I got a job working in an organic grocery store and I was kind of doing some musical projects on the side. And in a way I would say, I sort of just gradually was doing less and less music, um, to the point where at a certain point I was, I really wasn't doing anything, but I was feeling bad about it because I was like, Oh, I'm supposed to be a musician. I'm supposed to be working. And I decided to just stop feeling bad about it and just not be a musician anymore. So I pretty much spent a year um, without playing the saxophone. And at this time, I guess I I, um, I just wasn't really involved in the types of music I wanted to be involved in in Wellington. Um, I'm not sure why. I think it was sort of a confusion, like a dissonance between my concept of what a jazz career was supposed to be and what my interests really were. Um, so in, in what guess, way? Can you say more about that? Um, sure. Okay. Well, I, I guess that I, I had this sort of belief that 
Um, when I finished, like while, whilst I was a student, I had this idea that when I finished jazz school, I would be this kind of burning saxophone player who, who would just like know tons of standards and would always be playing gigs and, um, and, you know, like late night gigs and bars and weddings and, you know, whatever it is that people do who are kind of working to make a living. And, um, I did some of those things and I think I found that I didn't, uh, it wasn't that satisfying for me. And, um, as far as making, I, th I think where my heart really was, was, was in making original music. I mean, I guess it was evident because I focused so much on composition while I was at university, but I didn't really know many people who, who were so focused on playing original music. And I kind of had this idea that you had to make money from music, which I think sort of stopped me from exploring some of the things I really wanted to explore, maybe a fear about um, not being able to earn money. And so my music sort of not counting in some strange way because I wasn't being paid for it. And letting go of that attitude really was freeing for me later on. <laughs> um, yeah, so so I don't know. I think I, I had this idea that I had to be professional and I wasn't really succeeding at that goal or so um, I just sort of moved further further away. And I think it was also part of not being not really being part of the right community of musicians, um, partly because Wellington is a smaller city. Um, but there is a there is a good scene and there are really interesting musicians there. And some of them I just didn't know. Um there was a big free improv scene and I sort of interacted with that somewhat, but I wasn't really a, really a part of that scene. I was a little bit intimidated by it. So it was kind of, um, yeah, I think, I think just not knowing what I wanted to do, not being part of the right community and maybe not having specific models that had the kind of career I wanted that I could aspire to. When you when you were in high school, were you thinking about were you seeing people who were doing something that you thought I want to do that and therefore I'm going to go to school to major in performance or where was your conception of what your life after school might look like? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I remember that I think I looked up to my saxophone teacher a lot. I went to some of his you know his concerts. He would do jazz concerts every now and then. Uh, I looked up to my big band director a lot. Um, and we, I was part of a small jazz combo that played gigs sometimes on the weekend at the end of high school. And, um, I thought that was just super cool and wanted to do as much of that as possible. And, um, I remember I had a student music teacher also who was a jazz vocalist and I uh, went to see her sing on the weekend in some little cafe and just thought it was the coolest thing. So I, I, I didn't understand the economics of it. I mean, I didn't know how hard it was to make money. Um, but I guess I just wanted to be living this sort of glamorous jazz lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that those three words don't get used too much in combination anymore. <laughs> I think you would have been, you would have done better to be born in like 1935 than in, uh, <laughs> when you were. Yeah. Maybe in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. I often, I often feel the same. So, okay. So there you are, you're working in an organic grocery. You're barely playing the saxophone. What, what started to turn that around for you? Was the, was the trip like post turnaround or was, or was taking the trip part of what started to turn things around for you? It was part of it. So the thing that happened before that is that I, um, I was working in the grocery store. 
Um, I had actually been doing some teaching in the university too, um, sort of like uh, small scale tutoring um, with some beginner saxophone players and some jazz combos and stuff. And I found that difficult. And um, then I ended up quitting music and I decided I'm going to have a different career. And what else am I interested in? And I decided I'm going to go back to university and study uh, creative writing and English literature. So I did that and I just did that for one year. Again, it was a qualification that only exists in New Zealand, which is called a postgraduate diploma, I think. Um, and I loved creative writing. I discovered that I did not love studying English literature, although I love reading. Um, I wasn't interested in literary criticism, really. I was just interested in kind of Really, I was interested in creativity and just having a response to creativity or being the one doing the creativity <laughs> as in doing the writing. So um, I find it funny that that part of the reason you moved away from a jazz career was because you were unsure about how to how to monetize it. And so your backup plan was creative writing. <laughs> that well, seems yeah, like that there's like, some wishful thinking there, I think. Yeah, I came to that conclusion as well. I mean, I... I think I had in mind, you know, I'm going to go to school and maybe I'm going to pursue something like journalism or, you know, I was also sure. thinking about, about something practical. But um, I discovered that what I actually enjoyed about being at school was creative writing. But I also discovered um, I think I just felt like I wasn't as good at it as I was at music, not necessarily because I couldn't have learned or improved, but just because I was further along with music. Um, and I ended up, I, I tried to get into a graduate program in creative writing and I was unsuccessful. And then I wasn't sure sort of what to do next. I was at a bit of a crossroads. I had just broken up with my boyfriend and I was thinking about leaving town. And so it was after that, that I ended up moving back to my hometown for the summer, playing the soprano all summer and then going to the United States. And, um, when I was in the United States, I spent the first six months um, kind of traveling, visiting friends, and I did some internships and I did some woofing, um, working on organic farms. The internships part was um, I did internships at two different artist residency programs because I had this idea at that time, you know, maybe I am going to have a career in, the, in arts administration. And so I want to go to places that are about supporting artists to be creative and kind of be involved there. So I did that and I ended up coming to New York at the end of that six months to take part in the School for Improvisational Music Summer Intensive with Ralph Alessi. And before I arrived, I was like, I think I'm going to move to New York. I'm going to try living in New York. I was kind of at the peak of my um, adventure adventurousness after traveling for six months so I was like okay I'm gonna try it out
And so when you arrived, how did you how did you do anything? <laughs> how did you find a place to live? How did you find a job? Any of that stuff? Um, well, I had met, I had several years earlier, uh, before giving up the saxophone, kind of, I guess about a year before that, I had gone to the Banff Jazz Workshop in Canada. Um, that was a huge experience for me. That, that was that was great, and I met some great people there who I ended up reconnecting with in New York. Uh, some of them already lived there. Some of them moved there kind of at the same time as me. Um, so that was really one of the things that was the most important for me was that I quickly met some really like-minded musicians and quickly was playing, even just just kind of having jam sessions, but was playing with those musicians and it was really exciting for me because it was kind of what I had been needing Um what I had been needing, I guess, for years when I was back in New Zealand was just finding that community that I really felt like I gelled with. And who were some of those people? Um, well, Kat Torren um, was one of the most important people, and she's still a great friend of mine. She's a pianist from Vancouver. So I met her in the Banff Center, and she moved to New York um, also in 2000, I think in 2010, just, just about a month or so after I did. Um, and then also Pat Reed, who is a bassist, who I also met at the Band Center, who's Canadian. He actually has moved back to Canada, but he moved here at the same time. Um, and then some of the other people were not people I met at the Band Center, but people I met through people I met at the Band Center. So um, a great friend of mine, a vocalist called Mei Chung, um, and Kate, uh, Kate Gentile, who's a drummer that I play with. Um, I met her through Pat Reed, through also John Lindhorst, who's another saxophone player. I met through all these kids. Most of them are Canadian. <laughs> uh, Kate, Kate would hate for me to say she's Canadian, but she yes. knew a lot of Canadian. So. She's, she's from upstate New York, so she's almost Canadian. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so um, there, there's such a there's such an interconnected web of musicians in New York that once I met some, I was meeting others. And another important person that I met quickly was Russell Moore, who is a trumpet player who played on my record. And he um, was at the time the house manager of the jazz gallery. And I met him through uh, a mutual friend that I met at Sim. Um, and he had met her at Banff. So this is, again, part of this network of young jazz musicians who go on courses and all know each other from different sure. countries. She was Canadian. So um, I met Russell early on and I ended up becoming a volunteer at the Jazz Gallery for um, at least a year, maybe longer. Um, so that was another way that I heard a lot of amazing music, met some musicians and kind of got to have a clearer idea of what part of the jazz scene I was interested in and what kinds of things were going on. And so what were you, how were you, how were you surviving in New York at that point? What were you doing to make money? How did you find a place to live? All those kind of things. Ah, well, I started out, um, making money was definitely a priority. I, uh, I initially had a job at, I had a temp job, which I got, um, I actually kind of got it through a friend. So I met, um, a writer called Natty Adams um, at one of my artist residency programs. And um, 
I ended up subletting his apartment with another friend um, who's a composer called Nicole Carroll, who I also met at this artist residency program. So we lived in his apartment in Jersey City for the first four months. And um, I ended up getting his job because he had uh, gone on, I think he had some kind of a travel grant to do writing research. And he had been working in um, the call center of an investment bank as the night receptionist. So I ended up getting this job. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was funny. I signed up with the temp agency on a Friday and then uh, got an email from Natty saying, do you want to interview for my job? Um, So I said yes. And then on Monday, the temp agency called me and they were like, you're the quickest person to ever get a job because I had gotten the job myself over the weekend. So. (laughs) Uh, can can we pause in this story for a second to say there seems sure. to be some very lovely birds singing behind you? Oh, yeah. And, which is great, uh, but also makes me very jealous because I, I assume where you are, it's warm and beautiful, right? Uh, it is warm. Yes, it's uh, – I mean like a summer dress. It's completely <laughs> – it completely feels like summer. Um, yeah, so we I, had a snowstorm I, here 48 hours ago. There was a snowstorm 48 hours ago. Wow. Yeah. So it's not feeling like spring yet. No, it is It is not. And during this entire interview, I'm listening to these gorgeous birds, and I'm picturing you in, in Mexico and just thinking, I'm just a little bit, and when I say just a little bit, I mean a lot, jealous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it sounds so nice. It just sounds like I'm interviewing you in paradise, and uh, yeah. meanwhile, I'm, I'm looking at dirty snow out the window of our... Our place. Well, admittedly, I think my neighbor has – I think my neighbors have pet birds because there's an unusually high concentration of bird song here at all times for them. <laughs> it's actually a fairly urban area. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, good to know. So so you got settled in. You found yourself uh, you know, a job to, to pay the rent. And mm-hmm. did you have a – it sounds like you were kind of very quickly – participating in at least jam sessions with other people. Mm-hmm. How did you start to kind of build a, a, a life or career path for yourself as a musician, figure out what you were going to do? Um, it was, it was something, it was kind of a situation where when I arrived in New York, I didn't really have the goal that I was going to pursue a career as a jazz musician in New York. It was, um, I wasn't really at that level of confidence. I was more just, I had been sort of out of it, out of playing for so long, and um, I was getting back into it, and I wanted to be involved. I wanted to listen to music, but I wasn't feeling, uh, yeah, I wasn't really feeling like it was feasible. So um, it was just a gradual evolution because I think I was part of a community of people who all were really committed to having a career in music. And through playing with them and through knowing them, I kind of maybe started to, I don't know, started to catch on to some of that, to some of that kind of uh, enthusiasm or belief (laughs) that it was possible. And I think, yeah, I was still pursuing this idea that I wanted to work in the arts. Um, So I was interning at the Jazz Gallery. I ended up getting a different job, which was um, sort of an arts administration related job that I had for a few months. Um, And then later I worked in music publicity. Um, So I got a job working with Matt Matt Merowitz for Fully Altered Media. Um, And 
I think by the time I started working for Matt, which was about my last year living in New York, I knew that I wanted to be a musician. Um, so it took a while, but I realized that just working in the arts and organizing things for everybody else to do wasn't fulfilling my desire to be creative. And so, yeah, eventually I figured out that what I really wanted to do was have my own musical career. And um, so after being in New York for two years, I ended up going to graduate school to study composition. And the purpose of that was really to focus 100% on being an artist <laughs> and not work anymore. So you went to Wesleyan and uh, and focused on composition, and I'm I'm guessing by this time that playing the saxophone had also once again become a regular part of your life, right? Yeah, it had. I I had um, I guess after, it was after I'd been in New York for a few months. I decided I really want to start performing, and I had an opportunity to um, book a show and. I called the people I wanted to play with. I brought my music, we played, and suddenly I had formed a band. So I was like, okay, I'll try and find another place for us to play. And I just kind of kept doing that. And so, um, yeah, we had been playing together for maybe a little, a little under a year in the lineup that I ended up recording with when I decided, okay, I really want to document this music. I want to have a recording that I'm happy with of my compositions. And we went into the studio and made what ended up being my first album. And that's Fortune Songs. And so that band was all the people you just mentioned, Kat Torrin on piano, Russell Moore on trumpet, Patrick Reed on bass, Kate Gentile on drums, and of course mm -hmm. you on soprano. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As you look back at it now, is it kind of a, a snapshot of where you were at that moment, do you do you hear things and think, yeah, this is definitely kind of what I was into compositionally and what I was into in terms of improvising at that time? Yeah, definitely. And um, 
it's interesting because I, I had done a lot of, um, you know, I had written a lot of music in the years before I released that album, but um, some, and some of that music was pretty composed. Um, you know, I, I, I was required to write some big band charts whilst I was in jazz school and I wrote, um, you know, I would write those kind of arrangements where everybody gets annoyed because they don't fit on the music stand easily because they're like seven pages long. And <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and it was partly through, I think it was partly through my experience at the school for improvisational music. And um, I remember ha I had a composition lesson with Ralph Alessi and he kind of encouraged me to write more simple compositions. And um, I, I remember him saying something about, you know, sometimes it's the simplest songs that people really remember, that they really like. And um, he told me to start writing compositions on the subway, and which I did, some of. Um, yeah, so the music on Fortune Songs, with, with one exception – um, all of those compositions fit on one page. <laughs> they're, they're really, they're lead sheets. They're pretty simple. And, um, what was exciting for me at that time was really just discovering how I, I wanted to make music that was quick to get to the bit where you are beyond reading and you're interacting. So, um, it was exciting for me to explore that at that time with the people I was playing with, because I felt like we were able to quickly get to a communicative realm, which is really what's more enjoyable for me about improvising is a really collective feeling. And uh, now you are speaking to me from Mexico. And so mm -hmm. I, I kind of know, because I know you a little bit, uh, some of the story about how you got there, but there's, obviously some uh, some personal things in your life that led you to make this other fairly large move to where mm -hmm. you are now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so whilst I was in uh, the master's program at Wesleyan, I was part of a, they have, they take in, usually they take four composers a year. It's a super tiny program. And one of the other four composers is now my boyfriend. So he is, uh, his name is Christopher Ramos Flores, and he is a Mexican composer. Um, and he was there on a Fulbright grant, which requires him to return to Mexico or at least to not be in the United States after he graduates. Um, so we made the decision to come back to Mexico together, sort of for practical visa related reasons. <laughs> um, and yeah, I've been here for, it's probably 10 months now. And so you're in Morelia and where is that? Well, it's in central Mexico, and it's about three to four hours from Mexico City in the state of Michoacan. And what's it like? Is it a, is it a big city? Is it a medium-sized town? What kind of place is it? It's interesting. It's the biggest city in Michoacan, so it's the capital, and it's about a million people. So it's bigger than most of the cities in New Zealand, for example, but it's pretty small compared to New York. It's also significantly bigger than Middletown, Connecticut, where Wesleyan is. <laughs> where <laughs> I was um, yeah, but in terms of, I find that it feels smaller. I haven't really figured out why that is, um, partly because the downtown is, is um, kind of an old, is the old colonial city. 
um, which used to be the whole city. And then the city has kind of built up around this Spanish colonial downtown. And because the downtown is quite small, I think that kind of makes the city feel smaller than it is. But it's got some urban sprawl going on. And what is it like as an improvising musician? Are there good places to play? There are some good places to play, and there are definitely some good musicians, but this is the smallest jazz community that I've lived in, which is interesting. I wouldn't have expected that necessarily based on the population size, Um, but there is a smaller jazz community here than there is in Wellington, New Zealand. Um, So I'm still still in a way looking for my place, I would say, because um, I've been doing some playing and... Um, mostly, most of the jazz scene here is very straight ahead. It's very traditional. Um, and there's also a lot of kind of fusion, I guess I would say. Um, and I've, I've played with some people in Mexico city and I know that there is like more of a improvisation and experimental scene there. Um, I feel like the scene that I want to be a part of is kind of, uh, I'm not sure what it is, but I'm not sure that it um, – it's kind of like a fusion between jazz, free improvisation, classical composition, and something that implies a lot of melody. I don't know what that would be, folk music maybe. Um, and it, somehow that did exist for me in New York, but finding that in other places is a little bit challenging, and maybe I'm going to have to create it for myself. And so how how long does Christopher need to not be in the U.S.? I mean, is that an option for you guys to, to go back to New York or to go to some other place in the United States? Yeah, it's definitely something we're thinking about. Um, probably for in uh, 2016. Um, it's I think there's a two-year residency requirement after the Fulbright, so it's two years that he can't apply for a different sort of visa to the U.S. Um so, yeah, we're definitely considering that it's pretty likely that we would try and head um, either to the East Coast, to the New York area, or possibly to the West Coast. Um, and he's interested in pursuing a doctorate in composition. Um, I'm not sure that I'm that I'm interested, but I might be interested in pursuing a doctorate in composition. <laughs> Let's see. If uh, folks are listening to this near its release date, this is uh, this is the end of March 2015, and that means for people on uh, in New York City, there's a couple of chances to see you coming up in April, right? Yes, that's right. So I'm really looking forward to this trip, but I'm coming to New York to do some recording and to do some playing. And I will be playing on the 7th of April at 8 p.m. at Shapeshifter Lab with... Uh, a variation on my Towering Poppies lineup. So it's going to be me, Kat Torin on piano, Kate Gentile on drums, and Adam Hopkins on bass playing as a quartet. And then um, I'm going to be playing the following night on the 8th at Cafe Vivaldi in the West Village with Kat Torin as a duo. That sounds great. And uh, folks can check out those show dates at jasminelevelsmith.com, which of course will also be linked in the show notes to this show. I really love Kat Torrens piano playing. It's a, she's long overdue to come on the jazz session, but I just think she's a really phenomenal player. Yeah, she's, she's great. She has, um, a very personal and what's the word 
Yeah, she has a very personal and beautiful kind of expressive style that you can't help but, uh, I don't know, I feel like you can't help but be moved by listening to Kat Torr, and she's just a really unique musician. Yeah, I agree. What's the recording that you're doing while you're in the U.S.? Um, well, we're going to be doing, I'm going to be doing two days of recording, one day with um, the quartet that I just mentioned, but actually with the addition of Josh Sitton on bass clarinet. And then the second day of recording will be myself and Kat doing a duo recording. And um, this is just something that I'm doing. It's it's interesting because um, I'm wanting to document a bunch of the music that I've written over the time since the previous album. And I'm hoping that this will be the next album or maybe it'll be the next two albums. We'll see. But it's kind of just a way to start the process of working towards whatever the next album is going to be. And um, I'm planning to also, for this project, um, write some music or write some parts for string quartet, which are going to be recorded in Mexico at a later date. So it's it's a bit of an experiment doing everything separately, but I think it's going to work out, and I'm really excited about it. Oh, that sounds really great. Well, everything you're doing sounds sounds very exciting. Uh, my guest is Jasmine Lovell Smith, and I encourage you to check out her music, uh, check out her album, and if you're in New York City, go see her on the 7th and the 8th. And again, uh, there'll be a link to her website in the show notes of this show, and uh, all of her upcoming dates are there. Jasmine, it's been really a pleasure to talk to you. I thank you for taking the time, and I wish you all the best going forward. Thanks, Jason. It was It was a pleasure for me also. That's music from saxophonist Jasmine Lovell-Smith. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the logo. Find the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash thejazzsession, and you can find me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. Now that you're done with this episode, head over to firstlaughs.com and check out my stand-up comedy podcast. And don't forget, if you need a press release or a bio or maybe some work text work on your website, please check out cranewrites.com. Thanks so much for listening. Come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye.